Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. Welcome to the good stuff. Yeah. The Laugh Podcast. Over there is Mr. Two Frames Bull. Howdy. I'm the L Train. We're your co-hosts for uh, episode 50. This wow. is a big show for us, man. Yeah. We're at the half century mark. 50 episodes uh, live on iTunes. What happened in the spring of 1967? I have no idea. I was born. Ooh. The L Train was born. What happened at some point in the 80s? I was born? <laughs> yes, you were born. What happened in September of 2012? Uh, laugh. The Laugh Podcast was born. You can actually see that initial, or listen to that initial episode on our webpage. Yeah, it's the only place. The Laugh Podcast. Dot com. What is it? It's our it's, last, it's, Lost Laughs or something? Yeah, it's in the Lost Laughs. Uh, these are all the pre-iTunes episode, or there are a handful up there. Two. We, we can't put all of them up because we played some music. and. If you have small hands, it's a handful. Yeah, they're, 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 it's the unofficial canon. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we've had mm, three years, three and a half years, four years. Yeah. You're going to pick out, well, we're going to pick out what we think are the top five films of the Laugh Podcast era, and we're going to throw them out there and let you guys know where you can, well, maybe not know where you can find them, but that you should go out and try to find them on your own. Yeah, we each did our list of our top five. What was your criteria, Mr. Two Frames, for determining your top five movies of the of the Laugh Podcasting era? Um, one of my top criteria was I had to go see the film in theater. I thought that was really important. Okay. Seeing it on the big screen, being able to judge it on its uh, merits. Very Just, good. You know, sometimes seeing it at home, it's not the same. It's not the way the director intended it to be seen. So all of my films I had to go see That's in a theater. shame for you because a lot of your movies were uh, those animated, like some of your favorite movies of the past four years mm-hmm. was yeah. your uh, animated movies from... Yeah, some of those like DC yeah. comic book movies, they got eliminated, not even up for running. Right. What? But, you know, still looked through. So, yeah, uh, on the screen, didn't have to see it with you, though that helped if there okay. was a good audience there. Okay. All right. Uh, I guess that was pretty much my big criteria. What about for you? Um, I, I, like you, I had to pick movies that started, that were released after September of 2012. And basically, I've been ranking the movies I've seen over the last few years. And uh, I just picked out all the movies that were tens and eights. Tens and nines, also. Tens, <laughs> nines, and eights. I didn't have very many tens at all. I think I only had two. And they're on the list. Maybe three. And um, and then I just I sat down and I ranked them according to my preferences right now. Because okay. this, this is a very mutable list for me. The one, like the, my top three, I think are almost interchangeable. At least my top two are. And then I actually made a list of like 18 movies, 19 movies, and uh, I could see any one of these in the top five. I could talk about them for different reasons, but uh, I, I wanted to focus on the movies that I thought, for me, best represented my point of view and the kind of things that I look for in movies. 
So, did uh, watchability or rewatchability play any factor? Yeah, in this? it did. When I was trying to distinguish, but like, which one of these would I pick out to watch next? Like, if I had to sit down and I was going to watch one of these movies, what would be the first movie I would watch next? What would be the next? And then, obviously, I could rank them like that. That that deter that was a determining factor. Okay, because well. I thought of it in the old '90s terms of what is a remote control stopper where you're flipping okay, through the channels yeah, and you yeah. hit on this film. And we don't get that so much now with satellite TV and HDMI stuff because there's that right. pause always now when you load channels. It's not like in the good old cable days where, I mean, you could flip through right, really right. quickly and uh, the movie title didn't pop up on the screen. You just right. had to figure it out. And there were times you would sit and watch a movie trying to figure out yeah, what it was. Yeah, and after 10 minutes, you, you're hooked back, or you're rehooked. Yeah. Yeah, nowadays it's more like uh, hit the guide and then you see <laughs> what it is you're going to be watching. So, Oh, this is already halfway through. When's this playing again? Yeah, or recorded or something. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was kind of my criteria. I like it. What comes in at number five for you there? Number five uh, yeah. is the film Gravity Ooh. in 3D. It's okay. got to be in yeah. 3D. I All think right. that's really important for this film. All right. Um, this is the film starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney as astronauts in space when things go horribly, horribly wrong, and they attempt to get back to Earth safe and sound. Directed by Alfonso Curion, uh, this was my top film two years ago, hmm. and I think it's got to be probably my favorite actual movie-watching experience in the last two, three years. Hmm. I, I loved watching this in theater, uh, seeing this on an IMAX screen in 3D, uh, super dark theater, you felt like you were in outer space with the actors. How many people were in the theater with you? Uh, it was about a third of the way filled. Oh, wow. I, I, I saw could... this early on a Sunday morning. This would be a movie, though, that you'd want to see completely alone. You'd oh. really get that sense of isolation Yeah, yeah, yeah. that she felt. Um, this is the movie that I would always point to when people try and talk badly about 3D and that 3D is unnecessary. I right. think the 3D is a wonderful storytelling device in this film, and it does add a layer. And yet it holds up in uh, 2D, but I don't know if it would hold up on your television screen. I do show this film to people when they come over to look at my TV. I, I have a very nice 55-inch yeah. 4K television, and I have shown this to people, and they are impressed by the film. Uh, of course, it's nothing like the IMAX screen, like you were saying. Given that it's not a... that it is a 3D experience, and... It is like a sort of a visual audio thing that you'd have to sort of experience in the theater. Would you choose to show this to your Litton film class? Ooh. As part of a sci-fi genre study? I, I don't think... I think it, it, the, there are too many problems with the equipment. It's not just the visual, but it's also the audio. Mm -hmm. The theater I was in had really good surround sound, right. so it was very immersive. You could feel things whizzing around behind your head. Right. I so. heard that the uh, DVD has a segment where you can play play it through without any of the um, soundtrack. Yeah. That you get the true space experience. Yeah, it's good stuff. So I, I like it. So, All right. Um, that would be my number five. What was yours? Number five. This is the uh, this actually this movie was number two for me last year. On our top fives, and the movie that uh, that got left out in the cold, eh, I've seen it a couple of times since then. So we talked about watchability. This is the movie I would watch fifth <laughs> on the total list, but it deserves uh, being talked about again. It came out in May of 2014, and it's Blue Ruin. Ooh. 
A mysterious outsider's quiet life is turned upside down when he returns to his childhood home to carry out an act of vengeance. Proving himself an amateur assassin, he winds up in a brutal fight to protect his estranged family. This uh, is written and directed by Jeremy Saulnier and uh, stars Macon Blair as uh, the, the mysterious outsider at the beginning of the movie. You don't really know who he is. A lot of the movie is told visually the first 25 minutes, maybe. Yeah, they take their time explaining the plot of the story and some things aren't terribly well explained. Well, they let you read it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so it deserves multiple watchings, I think. I saw it on DirecTV and I was so taken with the film, I wanted to see it in the theater right away. So I, I paid like the eight bucks to see it on DirecTV just mm-hmm. on a whim. And then I was like, holy crap. And it came to uh, Gloucester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is weird. An art house sort of indie film. I think it won, it won uh judge's prize at Cannes in 2013 and I heard Jeremy Saulnier talking about it and he said that they had actually they had to cobble something together to send out to the editors or they had to edit it together to send out to the judges so that they would have something to judge mm-hmm. it wasn't even the, the final version that they they put out there so and you're saying this does hold up on subsequent viewings because I've only seen oh, it yeah. one time I enjoyed it yeah yeah but I, I kind of wonder if some of the suspense uh, drops away well when see you know suspense isn't really important for me in movies because I don't really care about <laughs> I don't care about human beings. But even the suspense of motivations and We've why are characters it. doing what they're doing? You know, I, now that I know the whole backstory, which I'm not going to spoil. I think that you're better able to appreciate some of the cinematography and the and the effects. Right. And the second and third. I've seen it probably three or four times now. And I definitely think it's worth it. I just like the way that these guys tell their stories. Uh, Jeremy Saulnier and Macon Blair are from around here. They're, they're from Richmond or... or Northern Virginia, where you lived. And uh, one of them went to VCU. And um, they used to do this as buddies, just hanging out. They used to come up with like these movies and film them on their video cameras. And uh, they finally got some money together and made a real movie. And it turned out to be probably, I mean, I think one of the top five movies of the Laugh Podcast era. I like Or Laugh Podcast era, I guess. I think it's a great hidden gem of a film. These guys are filming a crime thriller called Green Room, which uh, stars Patrick Stewart, Anton Yelkin, and Imogene Potts. Macon Blair is in this movie also. But you kind of feel sorry for Macon Blair because he's like, it's like he's he's the quarterback for the team Mm -hmm. that won the state championship the year before. And then the next year, like over the summer, Peyton Manning comes to your school. <laughs> and now all of a sudden you're playing flanker and starting on special teams. You're no longer the quarterback. So that's sort of the scenario that I find it in, find him in here. He's playing a secondary character or a tertiary character in this, uh, this new movie. And I kind of like sort of the carryover from Blue Ruin, Green Room. There might be another color thing. I think there are a lot of good stares for this film. Like, Patrick Stewart has a great stare. Yeah, he, he's playing the uh, head of us, uh, neo-Nazi Yeah, the guy from Blue Ruin, great stare, and Anton Yelkin, he's a pretty good stare. He does that a lot in Odd Thomas, a little-seen science fiction film from a couple yeah. years ago. Way to come up with the most obscure reference possible. It was supposed <laughs> to be a ser- it, it, it's 
No, but he was in Star Trek, and he was in something else, too. That's kind of funny. It's Odd Thomas. No, Odd Thomas was supposed to be a breakout film, and it, it just never did the bots office. It was like Dylan Dog, another science fiction film that died and was supposed to have a bunch of sequels to it. Right. All right. And, <laughs> and Cream Cheese Ware, another, another movie no one else has ever heard of. <laughs> hidden gems are hidden because yes. they're hidden. Right. Uh. <laughs> no, I like I, I I like Blue Room. Good pick. All right. Number four for you. Number four, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Though, if you're looking for it now, you have to call it uh, Live, Die, and Repeat. Another sci-fi movie. Yeah. Though I don't like this film because it's a science fiction movie. I like it because of the uh, writer for the film, Christopher McQuarrie. Okay. He's probably my favorite writer out there right now. For whatever reason, the way he paces a film, I just really, really like it. Uh, he's famous for writing The Usual Suspects and Way of the Gun. Uh, oh, Way yeah. of the Gun, That's great action movie. film. Right now, he's actually directing Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, the new Tom Cruise film that drops later this summer. Okay. Uh, he's also worked with Tom Cruise a couple other times. Uh, Valkyrie. All I right. think that's where they started. Yeah, it's not there. a bad movie. It goes a little long. Mm-hmm. But in all of his films, he appreciates the audience and appreciates that the audience can follow along. I wonder if he has crews in mind when he's writing these movies. I have no idea. Huh. I, we should get him on the podcast and ask him. All right. Uh, but Edge of Tomorrow, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt are trying to save the world against these aliens that can distort time. They can go back and replay a battle over and over again mm-hmm. until they figure out a way to beat the humans. Tom Cruise gains this power, and he and Emily Blunt try and game the system. Right. So, I thought it was a great film. We went and saw it, didn't have high expectations, and I feel like it blew both of us away. This is easily on my top five science fiction films of all time. And this was another, we went to the theater and there weren't many people in no, it. three or four. It was the at the Paragon. Yeah. The first movie I saw at the Paragon, which ruined me for all other theaters. Uh, great sound. We noticed uh, the, the sound in that theater made that film better. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was good to begin with. I mean, Brendan Gleeson's in it. There's some good acting, I think. It's, it's a really underappreciated film, but it's a yeah. good pick. And it's one that I find myself going and re-watching bits and parts of time and time again. So, All right. That's my number four. Number four for me said a lot about this movie, so some people are going to find it pretty tedious, but I tell all my kids to watch it, especially if they're in band or orchestra. <laughs> number four for me... Came out in October 2014, Whiplash, written and directed by Damien Chazelle and based on uh, his experiences as a musician, starring Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons. Uh, Miles Teller is a jazz student, and he has an ambitious instructor who's trying to get the most out of him. His motto is, the worst two words in the English language are, good job. So, I see why you like this film. Yeah. Uh, this won three Academy Awards in uh, 2014. I'm guessing technical ones, sound. Yeah. Well, best uh, supporting actor. Oh, that's right. JK did one yeah. for that. I'm sorry. Uh, my apologies. Best sound mixing. It deserved that. Best film editing. I could see a very strong case for it. Um, the girl in it is uh 
Oh, what Melissa Benoist? Mm-hmm. She reminds me of Carrie Mulligan, just in looks, like a young Carrie Mulligan. She's playing Supergirl, the TV series that's coming up. Uh, yeah, people are really excited about uh, that. That that is one bad trailer. <laughs> and she's going to be in the movie Band of Robbers, which is the story of she's going to be Becky Thatcher uh, to a grown-up Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. All right. I, I like her. I'm not <laughs> so always sure her. about her choices <laughs> for films, but, but that that's a movie that could go either way. It could be really good, or it could be like uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which apparently they're rebooting. <laughs> See, there you go. Uh, Damien Chazelle is doing a romance movie about a jazz pianist uh, played by Ryan Gosling and starring Emmons, Emma Stone. So again, a movie that could be good, it might be ridiculous. Yeah, I've, I I have no idea. I'll, I'll have to wait to see a trailer on that. Any idea when that one comes out? Uh, no, I don't know. I think it's still in pre-production. All right. So it might be a while. And it might not ever get anywhere. But uh, yeah, this number four, and it, it could pop into my top three depending on how I feel at the moment. But like I said, I've said much, enough about it. I will say this, though. Total aggregate score mm-hmm. on Rotten Tomatoes between critics and audience this has the highest, 95% average. So it's well-liked by the audience, well-liked by the critics, not so much well-liked by you. I, I like it, and this is where I feel like you use Rotten Tomatoes to justify certain things. Rotten Tomatoes is binary. It's positive or negative. Right. I'm positive on this film, but I'm positive with like an eight, maybe an eight and a half. All right. There are other films I'm higher on, but the average score might be higher if we were looking at like a 10-point scale. Whatever. All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, my number three is from my favorite director, Quentin Tarantino. This oh. is uh, Django Unchained. That's my number three. Ooh. We could talk about it together. All right. You know what its aggregate score on uh, Rotten Tomatoes is? I have no idea. 89.5. That's not bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, he's a lot more polarizing than... Yeah, and this was one of the films, you know, I, I was happy to put it on my list. I wish that I could have put Inglorious Bastards on my list. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm with that, you. that's outside of the range. And there were a couple films I went to look at and went, ah, this is really like my second favorite film or third favorite film from this director. And that kind of knocked it down. Django Unchained, I like the film. I think it's a great film. I love Tarantino. There are a couple Tarantino films that I have a little bit higher. One of the things I think is magical about this film is that he gets another great performance out of Christoph Waltz, the bounty hunter. Yeah. Um, in this film, Christoph Waltz, to me, if you watch him in a Tarantino film, you feel like he's one of the great actors of the generation. But then you see him in a movie like Zero Theorem. And he's horrible. I mean, there's only one other film I can really recommend him from. Uh, Carnage. Yeah, that's good. Which, I mean, he's good in, it's not great, it's not horrible, it's based on the play of the same name. But everything else this guy's been in, Bad Water for Elephants, uh, The Green Hornet, Zero Theorem. I've never seen Big Eyes. I heard that he was good in it, though. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. He's In the other films, he's fine. I, I mean, there are other problems with the film. He's never done anything great. I'm hoping he's good in the new Bond film, Spectre, that comes mm-hmm. out this fall. Uh, he's supposed to be playing the Blowfield character, though okay. they keep denying that. I think he could make a great Bond villain. I'm hoping it's a great Bond movie, but I don't know. It's not Tarantino. They should get Tarantino to do the next Bond film. He has said he wants to do it. Huh. 
So, yeah, but, but he's not a company guy, and they can't push him around. So, which would be all the more reason to have him do Bond. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they'd like that. They like I, to control that. Let they do don't that. want to cede control over to someone like him. Christoph Waltz could be in there. Uma Thurman could be your femme fatale character. Is Waltz in Hateful Eight? I'm not sure. I don't know either. Either way, I mean, we're both going to that one. Oh, yeah, that's coming out in December. Yeah. Or November of this. Oh, it's coming out in November in Israel. <laughs> but I don't know if it's coming out in, in America. Probably we might not wind up seeing it until like January or February. Oh, I hope he gets a Might bigger distribution. Mm, That's also know. a film that I think we're going to have to travel for. Yeah. Because okay. um, some theaters are going to be outfit um, to show it in its native format. I think it's being shown in 2.78, which oh. is a very widescreen format. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think it's 2.85 to 2, 1. 2.85, okay. Yeah, I have that somewhere. Um, yeah, it's it's in 70 millimeter. Yeah, I mean, that's almost cinema scope, like how 2. the West was born. Yep. I mean, this is really why uh, this is going to be similar to Lawrence of Arabia and the width of the screen. So we may have to travel for that. Um, but right. what did you enjoy about Django Untrained? How did it get to number third, number three on your list? Uh, you know, I really appreciated uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, supporting role in here. I'm surprised that he didn't get a nom- Did he got nominated for a supporting actor? I believe so. I think. Uh, he, I, I, he. This is the first movie in 16 years where he wasn't the the top build character, and or uh, actor. Mm-hmm. He took a step back in order to, you know, away from his normal starring roles to be associated with this film. And he was he was he was involved in the screenwriting of the film as well. That whole speech on phrenology, he mm-hmm. sent that uh, to Tarantino. And had him write it into the to the movie, and he he uh, he put a lot into this movie. So, and that shows on the in the film. Another guy that plays a supporting role uh, is uh, Don Johnson. Oh yeah, yeah. And this has one of my favorite seeds of all time, the baghead seed that had uh, uh, Don Johnson in it also. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Don Johnson, a, a wonderful performance out of him. Yeah, he and was. When he was, was the last time you could say that about the guy? He was pretty good in the movie I just saw recently, Cold in July. He was oh, probably yeah. the best part of that. How have we not talked about Cold in July on the show? Maybe because I didn't like it too much. Uh, all right. We're, <laughs> all right. We'll have to table that. Because right. that, that is a movie we should talk more about sure. on another day. That's fine. Um, and then aside from those things with Caprio, this is a typical Tarantino movie. This His special effects supervisor, John McCloud, said... Uh, that these are the largest squibs that they've ever used, and that he had outsquibbed himself. <laughs> he said one of uh, Quentin Tarantino's directions was that he wanted the hits in some of the scenes to be very meaty. Uh, even Quentin even said to him, McLeod, he says, I think you may have gone a little too far on that one <laughs> at one point. So, yeah, it has everything that Tarantino's known for. Um, and so it made it for a thoroughly enjoyable movie-going experience. So that's both of ours, number threes. Yeah. So we're up to number two and number one. Oh. See, for me, these are interchangeable. Yeah, I mean, mine, I think it also depends who am I talking to about this film. Well, you're talking to the 
Yeah. Live podcast audience. But it's like with my dog. Is he named after Dalton Trumbo or is he named after Dalton from Roadhouse as played <laughs> by Patrick Swayze? All right. It all depends who you're talking to. Talking to me now. So for you, I would have to put at number two, The Raid 2. Ooh, nice uh, pick. Yeah. Uh, directed by Gareth Edwards. This is an Indonesian fight film. It's the sequel to The Raid Redemption. Uh, this film takes place approximately two hours after the first film. And this is the second of the Raid trilogy. I believe next year we get the Raid 3, which will play, take place three hours before the end of the Raid 2. <laughs> is that Oh, not... okay. So it's an, inter... it's an interquel, kind of. Yeah. We've um, said that before. In, in the it... Raid 2, towards the end, there's a subplot that they just kind of throw at you, and they don't really tell you how it started or how it ends. Apparently, the Raid 3 will go more into Wait, that. Wait, Hammer Girl? No, uh, there's another mob group. We might I want to see more. more Hammer Girl. I love Hammer Girl in this, and I love Baseball Bat Boy. Yeah, give me back my baseball. Those were my those were my two favorite uh, roles in that movie. That was a great movie, though. Yeah, all sorts of action. This is probably the best action film in the last twenty years. You watch this and you go, "Why has no one else ever figured out how to do this type of action and make a fight movie look this way?" Part of it was the practical effects that they were able to pull off in Indonesia. Because they were able to uh, kind of stretch the boundaries of what normal people would do. Mm-hmm. Like when they when they do a chase scene through the streets of Indonesia, there's like cameramen standing in the median and cars zipping by at 90, 90 miles an hour, just barely missing them. Yeah, they shut so. down one of the major roads in some Indonesian city to, fi- to film yeah. this thing over, it was like four or five days. Oh yeah, there was a lot of good blocking though with the cameras and like they they, they do a lot of good stuff with cameras. I it, it, if there were Oscars given for camera work and the camera technicians, these guys should have won. Yeah, it's it's some of the best camera work I've seen. Yeah, I, I Gareth Edwards, he's one of the most inventive directors visually that I've seen in a long time. He probably has the best segment on the VHS horror anthology series. Uh, I've never seen it. Uh, the VHS films, they're these short oh, horror okay. films. In the second one, VHS yeah. 2, he has one with a uh, suicide cult. I thought you were talking about VH1, the video music channel. No, no, no. The lighter MTV. Yeah, he, he does a wonderful single shot, or it, it's filmed like a single shot. A tracking shot. Yeah, a uh, single track. He does that cult shot. episode in VH... VHS, yeah, 2. Okay. Which I think is the best of the series. I mean, it's inventive. Uh, You know, I do think this guy has range. He's just not uh, in it for fight films. I know some people like Tony C up in Northern Virginia. He found the Raid 2 to be a little tedious. Wow. Um, So not everyone's a fan. You definitely should start with the Raid Redemption, which I would have put on this because that's the original film, you know, to the series and and kind of invents this whole style of action filmmaking outside of the, of the frame. Yeah. It's outside of the frame, but I'm still very happy with the raid two. And it was last year's uh, number one film for me. If the raid, the first raid had been within the framework, would you have put in both? Would you have put both movies in your top five? That'd be (laughs) tempting. Probably. I would tell myself, no, so you would pick the raid. First over this one, yeah, just because it's the original. I think I like this one a little bit better. Yeah. What did Tony C think of uh, Fury Road? I don't think he's seen it yet. I'll have to ask. <gasps> wow. Him. I wonder because that was that movie made me think of this movie. Fury Road made me think of of uh, Raid Two. 
That's a good double feature. Hmm? That's a good afternoon lost. I don't know if there's any green screen in Raid 2. I don't know if they do any post-production special effects like that. They wouldn't have to, really. If it, uh, th- There is some green screen work, I'm betting. Especially towards hmm. the end. Oh yeah, maybe with the yeah, with yeah, in yeah. some of the fight scenes. But yeah. some of the major fight scenes like that are choreographed and played out, they're played out in real time. Well they would even figure out where they were in the fight scene, um, shut down production to redo the makeup and they would add damage to the characters' faces and arms so that you really felt a progression hmm. as these fight scenes went on. Hmm. You, you know, it does look like the guys are be- getting beaten up quite badly. Good stuff. So, uh, your number two. Oh, my number two. So, this could be my number one on any other day. Mm-hmm. But today, and yesterday when I was filling out this list, my number two was Inside Lewin Davis. Oh. The Coen Brothers uh, film from 2013. Now, I'm not big on musicals. This is the closest I've gotten to enjoying any kind of musical <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and... uh it's uh, it's about a sort of a folk music singer in 1961. So it's around the change of the the folk music changing into something else, something more accessible to people, with protest songs and stuff like that. Um, and uh, this guy, Lewin Davis, is a folk singer struggling to achieve musical success while his life is like spinning out of control. Catherine Shord, writing in The Guardian, called it a Jenga Tower of Hard Knocks, (laughs) which is a perfect description. He's homeless and bereaved, and it all goes downhill from there. So if it starts to go downhill from you being homeless and bereaved, (laughs) then, uh, you know, you you got a pretty rough life. Oh, yeah, but... The reason that this is not number one Uh is because of the cat. I was nervous for the cat through the whole thing. You were nervous for the cat. And rightfully so, I think. Is this the film that um, sold you on Oscar Isaac? Oh, yeah. I wanted to add him to the list. Yeah, because uh, at the end of this, I'd like to pick the Laugh Podcast actor and actress of the uh, Laugh Podcast uh, era. Yeah, yeah, no, I think Oscar Isaac is great in this film, and probably this got him a lot of um, attention. He had do, he's done some smaller films like he had Drive before this. He had a bit yeah, part, a bit in, part that. in that. Um, I first saw him in Sucker Punch a couple of years ago yeah. and really enjoyed him in that. And he's starting to blow up. He's going to be in Star Wars, right? Yes, yes, he's going to get big after that. Yeah, yeah. But you heard about him first on Laugh. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. So the uh, the Coens. Did you know that there was a new? Um, who was it? John Tutoro. What's that guy's name? Tutoro? Yeah, yeah. He played the uh he played the Jesus in The Big Lebowski. Yeah. They're doing a sequel to The Big Lebowski. They're doing it or it. he's they're willing to let him do it. You know, I respect the Cohen brothers for doing that cuz they've already done that with Fargo, a right. TV show that we've both really enjoyed and we're looking forward to season 2 of. Treasure Hunter Kamiko. Mhm. Same sort of thing. They weren't involved in it, but they're letting that their uh, their ideas sort of get spread out mm-hmm. amongst. So they're inspirational for other artists, and they, they sort of enjoy that. But as a title, would you prefer 100 Minutes of Jesus or The Big The Jesus? <laughs> the Big The Jesus. 
<laughs> he got with the second one. Yeah, neither one of them will probably get picked. Probably not. <laughs> but that's my number two, inside Lewis Davis. I like it. Well, number one for me is a bit of a cheat, okay. I've got to say. But okay. it did get released in theaters. It is a wonderful film to see in theaters, and that's the way I'd recommend it. And it's probably that experience. This was actually probably my best experience in the theater in years. Oh, wow. And I think it also helped that I saw this in the theater when where I originally saw this film. This is Jurassic Park 3D. Wow. Number one movie of the Lad Laugh Podcast era. There is no one that I would not recommend go see this film in 3D in an IMAX theater. Huh. Assuming, of course, that you can see 3D. Very limited your chances of being able to go see this again, though. Oh, this will get re-released again. Okay. Uh, you know. If I have to wait another 20 years before I go Potomac Mills Mall to go watch it, so It'll be, be it. re-re-released. But I will go and, and I will re-watch it. I thought the film was magical. I was very worried when I went to go see it because the theater was packed and it was packed with children. And children make noise and they talk and they whine in theaters. Yeah. They're scary. It was silent. Everyone was enamored with this film. And they this weren't is a crying f- in fear and running out of there. No, they love everyone loved it. But and when this you say is, children, you're talking about like twelve to fourteen or like seven year old kids. Okay. We're in, in there watching this film and this is a film that's on NBC every single year around Thanksgiving. It was on last weekend. Hmm. And people universally love this film and watching it on a big screen, it does add something to it, getting the surround sound and the three D is spectacular. Right. We need to go back and convert more two D films to three D. Hmm, okay. I'm not sure what my list would be. I was just about to ask you that. Um, Inside Lewin Davis? <laughs> no, I mean, I've seen other ones, uh, Top Gun, and that was fine. The problem is there's not enough action in that film for uh-huh. the 3D. I mean, volleyball in 3D, right. yeah. The, uh, you know, that's fine, but this Meg movie... Ryan on a piano? Yeah. You don't need that, but this this was wonderful and magical, and this almost made my top film of the year... I think two years ago, but I thought it was too much of a cheat then. But right now, (laughs) if you want to sum up who I am as a movie watcher, Jurassic Park 3D in the theaters. All right. That's everything you need to know about Bull or Mr. Two Frames. You just let everybody know everything you need to know about Bull, but you wouldn't let me tell them what your birthday was. Exactly. (laughs) Wow, you're an enigma. There's no way that you'll be disappointed in Jurassic World. Even if it floats an air biscuit. (laughs) If I'm disappointed by this film, yeah, I'm going to be devastated. There's no chance. I I hope not. I want to go and I want to be my nine-year-old self. Mr. Two Frames, your number one film of the Lab Podcast era is a movie that you saw originally 20 years ago. And I was still amazed by it. Uh, Steven right. Spielberg's cinematography is wonderful. The special effects stand up. The acting. I mean, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. What more could you want in a film? I don't know. Hey, dinosaurs, maybe? Dinosaurs. <laughs> I mean, it's got everything. I, I just, there is a joy to the filmmaking, you know, where a little kid can enjoy it. I think we could go and watch it, and you can nick pip that film shot by shot and talk about how brilliant it is with its right. choices. I mean, I, I, I'll give it this too. Uh, this deserves a cornucopia award. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite uh, actor in it is Newman. 
Oh, it's got new. It's got Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> yeah, this good. is what kicked off his career. Well, of what doing, movie doesn't have Samuel L. Jackson? Come but on. this kicks off his career doing animal attack films, right. Snakes on a Plane, which we're doing a laugh track on later this summer, and also Deep Blue Sea, a film that we should have talked about already on the show. Oh yeah. How did we get to fifty episodes and never mention Deep Blue Sea? I feel like I have in my mind, <sighs> in my heart. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right. So to give us back our credibility, what was your number one film? <laughs> well, it's a slightly different film. <laughs> uh, going back to the Rotten Tomatoes thing, this is the lowest ranked of all of them. The critics liked it, but only at 85% in the audience, not so much. 60% of the audience. Uh-huh. Everyone I've talked to, aside from the four or five people that I saw it with, and th- those people were you, the megastar, and uh, we saw it with Steelworker. So almost all of the co-hosts, with the exception of the, the registrar, saw this movie in the same theater with us. Hannah? No. <laughs> Good guess, though. The Master. It Ooh. came out in September 2012, right around the, the nation period for the, the Laugh podcast. So it was in that same month where we all got together and went and saw this, uh, this movie written and directed by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. And starring Joaquin Phoenix as Freddie Quell, a naval war veteran who arrives home after World War II and finds uh, himself unsettled and uncertain, homeless and bereaved. It's a theme that runs through my through my movies, Mister Two Frames. Yeah, no, I, I see that. I'm not sure how much the plot really matters to this film, or at That's least probably or, why a lot of people don't like it, or a synopsis of the plot, I should say. Well, there is you a have plot. To know. It is a smart film. You have to know that he's compelled into the cause by the charismatic leader played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Lancaster Dodd is the character. Mm -hmm. Now, the true master in this movie, my takeaway is it's Amy Adams playing Lancaster Dodd's wife, Peggy Dodd. I think that she's the master of the title, and I think she's the master of the movie. Uh, Laura Dern's also in this. She's a useful rube, sort of like a useful idiot that you would need to have in a situation that Lancaster Dodd kind of takes advantage of her. You seem like you have something you want to say. I, I think I know my vote now for uh, actress of the laugh era. <laughs> Amy Adams. Laura Dern. Okay. She's in both of our number ones. Well, there you go. Make it happen. <laughs> we'll just go ahead and give it to her right now. Boom. All right, so this movie is actually well known for uh, its its attention to detail and capturing that era, that post-war era where a lot of disaffected soldiers came back from the war and had no idea what they were going to do with their lives. And this Freddie Quell character has a multiple uh, number of odd jobs. He plays a photographer. He tries to be a photographer. He works as a he works with a bunch of uh, migrant farmers, sort of picking lettuce or cabbage or something. At one point, yeah. yeah. And all along, he's concocting these dangerous mixtures of alcohol. So this is sort of how he tantalizes Lancaster Dodd into accepting him into the fold. And there's this sort of weird, uh, tense relationship that exists, this like sort of love triangle that exists between these three major characters. Known a lot for what was left out of it. Um, the marketing for the movie... Oh, yeah. Almost everything f- that that was in the trailers was uh, were deleted from the from the main part of the movie. I kind of like that idea. It it makes me think of 
it makes me consider the movie as something that exists beyond the framing of the movie itself. Like it's all these characters are existing in a world that's actually real and fully realized. And it's not just limited to what the director chose to show you on screen, but the marketing sort of puts all that stuff out there. So this would be an interesting film to show to a class. Into oh, <laughs> yeah, not, not, our not, 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 not high schoolers. <laughs> yeah. But you give them an envelope and you say inside's piece of paper that's going to tell you how you should look at this film. What prism should you look at this film under? Uh-huh. Whether it's gender roles, male bonding, Scientology, right. PTSD, the 1950s. Right. And I think you could give people a very different viewing of that film. Like you could you could give 20 different interpretations or, or prisms for an audience to interpret this film under. Right. And then just let them talk. And I don't know of another film where you could do that easily. This lends itself to deep themes in various areas, multiple in, areas. In completely different readings of the film. I think some of that also has to do with the extra textual stuff that goes beyond the, the frames. One, one of his assistant directors said that he'll shoot an eighth of a page for a day and a half. And that he, a day and a half. And he appreciates improvisation. Mm-hmm. He tries to encourage that. Did you know there there were some dream sequences that weren't even filmed that would have made it a very different movie? One of them was in outer space. Wow. You know, I could see that there there's a sequence. I think we've argued about whether or not it's a dream sequence. Oh, the dancing scene. The dancing scene. There's also a movie theater scene. Yep. And, and then I've heard people go on and on about the cartoon character that's on the screen in the movie theater scene and analyzing that. Right. You know, for pages and pages. Um, there's also a dream sequence which wasn't filmed about a woman being killed in a barnyard in the 1740s. <laughs> for some reason, uh, oh, production designer David Crank was the guy that said this on uh, the blog Cigarette and Red Vines. Cigarettes and Red Vines. Have you ever seen that? It's all about Paul Thomas Anderson's work. It's very intricate and detailed. It's a very good website. It's It's got a lot of... Uh, photo essays, some video stuff on it. The latest, I was, I went there to see what his next project was, and it didn't say because it's it's just sort of, uh, I guess it's still floating around in, in Paul Thomas Anderson's mind. But according to Cigarette and Red Vines, he went and saw the screen test footage from Tarantino's Hateful Eight, uh-huh. and he was. St- taken with the uh with a 70 millimeter presentation the master was shot on 70 millimeter but it was with a spherical lens yeah so it wasn't as wide screen size so the difference in widescreen between the hateful eight and the master is pretty huge he wants to use in his next movie 70 millimeter anamorphic which is the same as uh what he saw in hateful eight but there's just no idea of what it's going to (laughs) be Like what the movie's going to be. About. Now then, I like that because, because I mean, to get real technical for a second, an anamorphic lens squeezes the light and, and bends it and converts it onto the film and then it gets bent back. You'll notice this a lot of times with uh, lens flares where there, you know, little bits of light will, fl- will flare across the lens. Mm-hmm. With anamorphic, it's not uh, circular. It, it gets squeezed into more of an oval shape. 
and that can depend on where on the frame you are, how, right. how exaggerated that is. It, it also can change a lot of stuff with the clarity of the background of a shot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson has ever shot anything with an anamorphic lens, so I would be very excited to see what he does with this. Yeah, so um, that's my number one movie, uh, The Master. So now it's time to do our best actor and actress. Right. Who do you think should be? We already determined the best actress. Yeah. Laura Dern. Laura Dern. <laughs> it's got to be that. Surprise, surprise. Um, the nominees for best actor would be George Clooney, Tom Cruise, Oscar Isaac, and uh, maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I could see Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, I kind of like Brendan Gleeson. I'm going to let you pick. Me? Sure. I think we gotta go Oscar Isaac. All right. I, I I think he's been in enough stuff that we've really enjoyed. All right. Well, I'll be sending out their uh, their their laugh podcast trophies. Oscar <laughs> Isaac and Laura Dern. Laura Dern. I'll try to get hers to her before she dies. For the first three and a half years of laugh, <sighs> for the first fifty episodes. Right. Wow. Someone's going to have to get busy to get it for the next fifty episodes because we should be hitting that by the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. yeah who, who has like two films coming out between now and then John Cusack yeah, they might just be able to win it on quantity versus quality yeah I wanted to uh, have someone that went through all of them probably Brendan, Brendan Gleeson is the closest one that would have hit on some of the films like did you have any of your um, were any of your films my near misses yeah honorable, honorable mentions, mentions Calvary with Brendan Gleeson right I really wanted to put up There Will Be Blood, but unfortunately that was outside of the outside era. Outside of the era, yeah. But, I mean, we're both big Paul Thomas Anderson fans. Uh, no Country for Old Men outside of the era. Yeah, that's outside. Yeah. That same year as There Will Be Blood. I'm trying to think of anything else. I had... Uh, what did you have? I had a couple of movies from this year that wound up just outside of the of the list out of the top five. Ex Machina is in my top 20. Uh, and uh, Slow West, which you haven't seen yet, have you? I haven't seen Slow West. Uh, I look forward to watching that. Uh, Et's Machina didn't grab me the way it did grab you, but if you want to talk about new films, uh, Mad Matt's Fury Road. Yeah, that, that didn't really make my list, but another sci-fi did, Looper. Okay. That was up there, and Edge of Tomorrow was up there also. Um, Pack Rim, Pacific Rim, we talked a little bit about that. <laughs> Didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, that that could have made my top five. It doesn't really fit with the overall theme, though, that I see running through my my five films. Yeah, no, but I mean, it's still, it's a fun film. It, it's hard to narrow it down to just five. The top nine movies of the Laugh Podcast era uh, were Blue Ruin. I had it number five. Whiplash, number four. My, uh... Third ranked, which was also your third ranked, was Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino's movie. I had uh, Inside Lewin Davis, and my number one film was The Master. I like it. And uh, my top five, going from the bottom up, was Gravity in 3D, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, not in 3D, Django Unchained at number three, Raid 2, which would be awesome if it was in 3D, mm-hmm. and, of tr- and of course Jurassic Park in 3D. <laughs> So your list of regular movies, 2D movies, and 3D movies. <laughs> Was Django in 3D? They didn't release that in 3D, did they? I bet I could watch it on my TV downstairs in 3D. Oh. I could turn on the converter. 
Oh, okay. Do that. Let I, me know how it stands up. I've got plans for the weekend, then. <laughs> wow. You're going to be busy this weekend. I'm going to be busy this weekend. You're going to drag me off to see Jurassic World. Oh, yeah. <sighs> That's going to be on episode 52, our review of the film. <sighs> I want to see it on the West Coast and watch Jurassic Land. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we'll be reviewing that next, and then we got to do our uh, summer review or preview, and then our uh, box office challenge for the summer. You're also going to be reading your names. Yes. Of, I, so please send those in. If you were going to send in a name to us for Mister Two Frames to Butcher, where would you send it? Uh, you could email the show at the left podcast at gmail dot com. You could tweet us at the left podcast, or we're also on Facebook. So send us a message at facebook dot com slash the left podcast. You're so much better at that than I am. <laughs> All right, so good show, Mister Two Frames. I liked it. It's been a good fifty. Are we re upping for uh, another fifty? Yeah, man. I'm I'm all in. Game on. All right, so this is Lancaster Dodd from The Master. This is a line that didn't make it into the movie. After he asked Freddy Quell if he's unpredictable and Freddy farts, The Master says, What a horrible young man you are. You're a dirty animal who eats its own feces when it's hungry. <laughs> so for Mr. Two Frames over there... <laughs> it, or It's been a pleasure. I'm the L-Train. Fox at Bodum, everybody. There be dragons. And uh, so what, what was your favorite uh, or what, 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 what?